Hello and welcome to The Character of Comedy. I'm Jim Judges and in this super episode I have the pleasure of talking to character comedian, improv artist, puppeteer and improv and comedy tutor Charlie Vero Martin. Charlie has picnic baskets full of experience to draw on and in this episode we talk about character comedy and the creation of those characters. We hear about well-being lifestyle guru Persephone Gemstone, Professor Flipflop, and there's even a passive-aggressive pinecone and a talking picnic basket. You should look out for the preview of Charlie's seriously joyful sketch show full of characters, puppets and so much more. It's called Picnic and it's at the Bread and Roses Theatre London on July the 26th and it's also on throughout the Edinburgh Fringe in August from Thursday the 3rd to Sunday the 27th except the 14th and it's at 6.55pm at the Deli Belly in the Underbelly Cowgate so get there if you can. And let's get ready now to take a deep dive into Charlie Vero Martin's wonderfully creative world of character comedy and so much more. I'm very happy to be here talking to Charlie Vero Martin. Tell us a bit about your background. Start anywhere you like, perhaps, Charlie, and uh, tell, tell us how you got into comedy, character comedy and everything else you do. So over to you. Uh, hello. Um, well, I think I've always been a massive fan of comedy uh, since being a child. Um, very much a family that liked watching comedy and sketch comedy and being from Edinburgh, always seeing live comedy at the Edinburgh Fringe. So I think that was sort of in my bones from an early stage. <laughs> um, and then it really started when I went to uni in about 2008, I auditioned for the improv group there, improv and sketch group, which was called Blind Mirth. I was initially asked, looking for a sketch group, but they didn't have one at the time. And I was intrigued by improv and I auditioned, I got in. Um, and that group had a lot of American and Canadian students, which is where a lot of improv originally comes from. And it had been going for years. So it's one of the longest running improv groups in the UK. And I was very, very lucky that I, that was my start in improv because in, I, in general, I'm someone who believes, especially when it comes to performing, that you learn through doing um, a lot of it. And like you can, like, I love reading all the books and I love doing classes, but you can read all the books in all the world and it's not anything the same as being up on stage in front of a live crowd. Um, so yeah, I was very lucky that that was my my first steps into improv was we would rehearse twice a week and do a show once a week um, in short and long form improv, which I can go into later <laughs> and what the difference is in that. Well, perhaps I could, yeah, no, this is good. And perhaps I could ask you about that then. So how, how long was it until you were performing perhaps in front of a crowd or uh, maybe spreading your wings and maybe even appearing at the Edinburgh Festival then? What, uh, what was the trajectory like there? Um, well, almost immediately. I think I maybe had two rehearsals with the group and then we were out on stage um, because it was low stakes, it was, you know, the student union, uh, the student theatre and stuff. And then we'd do a sketch show, a big sketch show uh, once a year. That was in the second term. And then uh, we went to the Fringe in 2009. So yeah. within yeah. a year, that was my first time doing the Fringe as part of a comedy group. 
And what was that first experience like? It was so exciting. I think it was like, oh, this is what I really want to do. You know, I always dreamed of being, you know, in the footlights or whatever. And it was exciting because there weren't that many improv groups at that time. Mm. And I got to know a couple of people in other improv groups that I've stayed in touch with. Like I, I did, um, so James Ross, who runs Quantum Leopard, which is a really incredible night in London, very alternative and um, very inclusive. I met him at that fringe in 2009. He was there with a group called Fat Kitten. And um, I also did a late night improv fight night with a group that at that time was called Scat Pack. And then they became Mischief Theatre, who are the people that created the play that goes wrong and that whole... Just for the um, history records and the future <laughs> archaeologists, what, what, what group were you performing with when you first started then, um, then at so, the Fringe? So that was called Blind Mirth. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I was with them. I, mean, I did a five year long degree, <laughs> um, although a year of that I was in Italy um, and then I came back and I was still with that group. And by the time I was sort of the head of the group, like at the end of the group, we were we were taking things quite seriously. And that was when we really did start performing, like rehearsing twice a week and getting really into it. And we did two runs at the Edinburgh Fringe and we were I think I only found this out recently from somebody else that we were the first student improv group to get five star reviews yeah I think we were good. also the first student improv group doing long form um and it and yeah so that was 2012 and 2013 Excellent. um and we had like a sellout run and it was great it was a really exciting time so you headed to London for uh, where the, the streets are paved with. Well, what, what, what were they <laughs> paved with when you got there? <laughs> well, so I, got, I moved to London because I got onto a course. It was the first time it was the National Film and Television School uh, writing, producing comedy course sponsored by Channel 4. It was the first year it was happening. And um, yeah, I, I, I applied for it, I think, in... August, September, October, and then I had my interview in November, and then I was told I'd got in in December, and the class started in January. So I moved to London with nowhere to live and no job and no money. But the reason I partly did the course was I was allowed to get a loan because of this course. <laughs> so there was a brief time where I was just sleeping on friends' sofas, trying to get temp jobs. Um, whilst starting this, it was an eve it was a part-time course. So it was a, um, in the evenings, which meant I could work during the day because it was the only way I was going to be able to afford to move to London. You know, so many schemes like BBC schemes and stuff, especially back then were working for free. Uh, and I was like, I can't do that. But this at least allowed me to be still meeting people in the comedy world yeah. and learning to write for TV and radio yeah, whilst, you know, giving me a bit of freedom to work and get some money to start me off. Um, so how did that go and what, what did you learn? And yeah, what did you perhaps uh, get involved in? Um, I'll be honest. I don't know how useful the course was for me. I don't think it really did what I hoped it would. In many ways, it was great because it was it was a very strict course in that, well, not strict. It was a bit of a baptism of fire into like, this is what the industry is actually like. And 
you may as well find this out now and if you can take that then good and if you can't well at least you've left before you've yeah. wasted your time because yeah. it was host it was ran by bill dare who is the writer producer of dead ringers and he also is a producer on spitting image um and had done various things so what about um, that baptism of fire then you say and perhaps that <laughs> warning because for anybody who hasn't uh, had that insight how would you summarize what you saw behind the curtain it i think the best thing for me about it was that it made you get over yourself immediately because every week you had a new brief and you had to share your work no matter what state you felt it was in and it would be criticized it would you would have to read it out front of the class or submit it to Bill and he would give you feedback as if you were, you know, you were in his team producing. Yeah. And so that was good for me because I think before when you're working with a group of friends writing sketches, it's very easy to write things for yourself and to just sort of play it and be like, oh, I don't know if it's quite ready yet, blah, blah, blah. But you'd, you don't have time to be yeah. like that. And you, you've just got to get over that and yeah. create a bit of a hard skin. Um, and I actually was maybe quite surprised that I was able to do that um, and that that was quite a good sign for me that I was able to go along with that. So the course was 18 months long. It was every Tuesday evening. Um, and I think what was good for me is that I, I learned that I could write jokes for radio and TV because I think before then I'd had this idea that, like, oh, I can only do character call, I could only do sketch and it's like oh no wait I can write I'm actually quite good at writing one line <laughs> one liners and like this is how it works but the thing I think I I I wished I'd got out of the course that I didn't was we were told that by the end of it you would have a portfolio of work that um reflected your abilities and like the final piece you I, I wrote a, a tv sitcom pilot that was meant to be like a calling card of your style of work. And I left with a portfolio I felt not proud of because I felt like it didn't reflect me. It re it showed that I could be a skilled writer and I could write for other people, yeah. but it wasn't necessarily stuff I found funny. Moving on then. So, uh, yeah, what, what, what happened next? Uh, what, what sort of thing were you involved in over the next few years? So, yeah, when I moved to London, I auditioned for an improv group called Glitch, the improvised puppet show, um, which was already had been going for a few years, uh, a narrative improv show, which was made up of 20 odd puppets, all hand created by the director, Mike Hutchinson, um, Hutcherson, I should say, and uh, they were all sort of Muppety type monster creatures and none of them have a name or a gender or anything like that there were just 20 puppets and then we'd get a title for the story from the audience and we would just pick up what puppets we and we would improvise the story with puppets um what was the venue uh, for this then where, where was this happening so it was primarily at hoopla at the miller which is one of the, the which is the improv school i teach for now um and uh and that venue in that uh school has really grown it's the biggest one i think in the uk for improv um and we used to have a residency there every once a month uh, but we would go all we would do it all over london and we we went to 
we'd go to Bristol and Brighton and actually my first gig with them was at Shambhala Festival in the puppet tents there. Um, and we did the Edinburgh Fringe as well. Uh, yeah. So I was doing a lot of improv with them and then also the director of that, uh, we had a two prov uh, improv act as well, which actually came about because my first gig in London, which was meant to be with Glitch, this group I'd had two, re- I'd auditioned and then had two rehearsals with them or something. And this was meant to be my first gig in London and the rest of the group, I think because of trains or whatever, couldn't make it. So it was just me and him and we we're like, okay, we've since done two person puppet glitch puppet shows. I should say the type of puppetry is uh, based on Bunraku puppetry. So it's tabletop. You have a table and then the puppets have rods. Yeah. So you can make them walk across the table and stuff. Usually, ideally, you'd have about three people to a puppet. Um, it's just to give a bit of context <laughs> image wise. But yeah, the rest of the group can turn up. So um, we ended up doing a two person. Im- I'd never done a two prov before. Um, and Mike remembers saying, cause he used to do a two prov where they'd have like, um, they'd stop and they'd do this or they'd have music. And I was just so freaked out by that. I was like, no, let's just simplify it. Let's, let's not do any of that. Yeah. <laughs> Strip it yeah. all back. So we'd get like one, one suggestion at the start and then we'd, we'd do a scene. And then at some point we'd decide that the scene was over and we'd kind of look at each other and make noises and then melt into something else. And then that would be, and we'd just do that for about a half hour. And it was great because we'd have really big characters and it was so really, can really I, fun. Can I just ask you about this then? So uh, as you, are you as performers visible um, during this then or not? Are you below the table? Um, um, so with the puppet show, yes, where you can see us, we're usually wearing blacks, but you yeah. can see us. And that yeah. is also part of the charm of it as well as the audience can. We're trying to do this, but also, you know, it's an improvised show. And sometimes yes. you might need three characters on stage. Yeah. So you're trying to do this puppet. So they, they can see it working with the two person improv. That was me and my, Mike and I as, as human beings, not with puppets. Sorry. I gotcha. No, that's Sorry, worth, that, I should have clarified worth, that. No, no, that's, uh, that's worth clarifying. And what about that then? Because you've been doing a lot of um, uh, improv as yourself, uh, uh, as a performer. Um, mm. And how did you find uh, doing puppetry? Uh, did you mind that the puppets were getting the credit and not you? <laughs> it's a weird thing. The biggest, it's a weird thing. Because when I started, I really felt like the puppets were a block because you're like oh I'm trying to do improv and now on top of that I'm trying to do puppetry and at some point it sort of clicked where it's like oh no wait actually um I can do anything and that's kind of always been that's what I loved about improv initially as well is that you can be anything I wasn't just a squeaky little Scottish girl uh, getting all the squeaky little Scottish girl parts. I could be a cowboy. I could be, I could be the CEO of anything. I could be, I could be an alien. I could do anything. I could be whatever part I knew I could play, but I would never get cast in in a play, especially in St. Andrews. Like I, if any time I went for a play, I think I was getting cast as a maid. So I was like, So I kind of didn't bother with that after a while because in improv, you have that freedom to be whatever you want. And then with the puppets, you re- it, that took it to another level because 
you were playing, I was playing big monsters. And, you know, if you wanted to walk on the ceiling, you could walk on the ceiling. Like you could do that. If you could do the puppetry well enough, yeah. then you had no, nothing holding you back to do what you wanted. Now, I don't want to uh, interrupt too much or jump ahead too <laughs> far, but I have seen a YouTube clip of your good self with a uh, basket, a picnic basket <laughs> puppet. Yes. Want, at what stage did that come in? And is that connected to what you were doing then? Um, so he's very new. That's Mr. Ah. Basket Case. Um, <laughs> and he's, so he's in my new show. Um, and he, I started playing around with, so I've always had puppets in my solo shows. I started doing solo stuff sort of 2016, 2017. I've done three solo Edinburgh Fringe shows already. Um, I have a puppet, mini puppet version of myself that was made by the guy who directed Glitch. But this Mr. Basket Case is, is the first puppet I think I've done that's been purely made out of an object for a solo show. He's a picnic basket with uh, two paper cups for eyes. Um, and uh, he talks like this because <laughs> that kind of, so this is one of this thing, if we're gonna get into nitty gritty of uh, creating characters and stuff. Let's do that. So- Yeah, so I I actually taught a character workshop a few weeks ago, which was an all-day workshop, and it was blending um, improv, clowning, and puppetry, and a bit of stand-up into how people can discover and create characters. And the the use of puppets in the workshop was to talk about creating a puppet, creating a character from the outside in. Right. So... I don't know if you've had people talk about this on the podcast before, but... No, no, please. I'm really interested in that. And and in fact, what I'm interested in, as far as your work is concerned, the, the people, uh, the performers who I've spoken to so far uh, have often created a character. Uh, they may have had one or two characters, but they tend to just, um, if you like, develop that. Whereas, of course, with your work through improv and puppetry and then a number of characters, I I get the impression I can see that you've uh, gone through the process a number of times. Uh, yeah. So I'm, re- I'm really interested in, uh, yeah, your process or even your advice in terms of where the character uh, comes from, as far as you're concerned. Yeah. Do you want to say more about that? Yeah. So I've probably amongst my three solo shows, I've created about 20 to 30 characters and all of them, I feel quite confidently that I could improvise or take further but i i prefer variety and for for reasons uh, i'll i'll talk about maybe the shows separately and but in terms of creating characters i'd say i characters kind of for me in terms of how they're created fall into two basic categories of being developed from the outside in and then the inside out so a character that's built from the outside in starts with some kind of voice or physicality or something that informs a voice and physicality that I then I find funny and then adopt and then I discover who that person is yeah. after putting that on after putting that physicality or voice on yeah whereas a character from the inside out is someone that has a particular point of view or belief system and then it's 
how do I express that through my voice and physicality from the inside yes. out? Yes. Some of them can be a bit of a blend. Yeah. Could um, I ask you perhaps to give an example? And when we met um, uh, not so long ago at the Museum of Comedy as part of Sketch Off 2023, I saw your wonderfully um, uh, humorous, entertaining, if not hilarious, yoga, lifestyle <laughs> character. Of, uh, uh, what what type of, uh, perhaps you could remind me uh, of their name and uh, uh, where, yeah, where they, where they, fit in this uh, description yes yeah, so that was persephone gemstone um a wellness cult leader um and she i think would be very much an inside out whereas basket case is outside in so yeah so maybe those two are good comparisons to explain yeah. this, <laughs> uh, uh, this so idea. where would where would persephone start then what what sort of seed would you start with there uh... So she started with my disgust of the capitalization of wellness. Um, as a woman in her 30s, I am constantly bombarded. As a woman in my 30s who have gone through, who has had been diagnosed as anxiety disorders, been through therapy, done a lot of various things, um, I am bombarded with ads of how to fix me through well-being and well and i feel like these terms have been really co-opted things like self-care you know i was using that term 10 years ago and it was like nobody knew it and now self-care is buying a candle um <laughs> and so that character is an inside out character because it started with my inside feeling of uh frustration and disgust towards these things of like um, so she and so I, I first had her as a American because American was an accent I, I can do very well, but I felt like, oh, there's a lot of sort of bimbo American characters. And then I realized there's something a little bit um, and apologies to any Australian and South African listeners, but a little bit sinister. <laughs> for they, an Australian. Can, they can take it. They can. Take yeah. It. Um, <laughs> so I had to work on doing an Australian accent and Australians say she sounds more South African. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Um, but she's very much like, it's your fault. If yeah. you don't, if you don't meditate, um, then if you're not manifesting enough, then that's your problem. Uh, that's, it's all, it's all on you. Um, which I think is a really harmful thing. It's like if you don't pay for this course, this retreat, if you don't pay me to fix you, then it's your fault that you have crippling depression and suicidal. And I just think it's horrible. That's, that's right. Uh, but 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 a very humorous, funny, contemporary and recognisable character. So you're taking that um, quite valid, uh, concerning, challenging problem and, hmm. and uh, using satire to, um, to let us know what you think about it, I suppose. But also because it's recognisable and it's very much of the moment, the audience loved it when I saw it, yeah. Yeah, I, and it really makes me quite happy, actually, to hear other people have described, like yourself just there, describe it as satire. Because yeah. I didn't set out to necessarily, uh, so I, maybe I should call it Bill and be like, hey, apparently I'm a satirist now. <laughs> uh, give me a job. Um, 
but I think because at first I was a bit nervous about doing the character because I thought there's so many people doing parodies of influencers yeah. and well-being yeah. type people on TikTok and Instagram. And so many, every single time I do it, people come up to me like, oh, are you pretending to be this woman? Are you pretending to be this person on Instagram? And I've never heard of any of them. Yeah. But I think that's why the character that's why it had to be an inside out approach because it came from something in me that I hate and I found a way to I actually am that person yes I'm not parodying anyone in particular I'm not taking something from the outside world and and yeah. just having yeah. me and, and, and playing it out yeah. it's coming from a darker deeper place this is this is good. And one thing that I'd uh, like to ask is um, thinking about that character. Um, how do you become her? Then is there any anything you use uh, to uh, get into that uh, character, or, or can you just switch her on and off? As an example, <laughs> some some characters I've spoken to might might need a particular costume or a or a wig or uh, some so or a lucky or a feather. Uh, what what about yourself? How do you um, get into her? She's actually the first character I've ever done that has a wig. Oh, yeah. um, and I do think the wig helps a lot because it's this, and especially because to me, the few people that I did sort of think of when I started creating this character, they all have this hairstyle. They all have this white woman hairstyle, which is parted in the middle and it's long, long sort of balayage blonde hair. Um, and what's really, I had a little mood board of like this like wellness writer, this yoga person, and this woman who's a, a serial killer. Um, and they all look identical. Because uh, I wrote, I watched this, because uh, it's also a, a lot about cults as well and the danger of like cult thinking. Um, I watched this uh, horrible documentary on Netflix about this woman who is in this cult and she ended up murdering her children. And of course, I'm not going to parody. I'm not parodying her. That's horrible. But I think it's interesting that she got away with it so long because she was this, hi, I'm this nice blonde white woman in yoga pants. How could she possibly be harmful? And I think that's it. It's like people are always oh, harmless. It's just women being dumb. It's like, no, this is so harmful. It could be really harmful. Look, this this is great, and it's interesting here. So, uh, where does where is Persephone then? Is she just somebody who came along for a moment, and you've 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 got that out of your system, and you've moved on? <laughs> or is she likely to hang around, and you'll do more with her? So, where does she fit? Uh, so she's very much uh, a part of my new show. So yeah. this new show I've been developing for about two years, and there's been lots of characters that have kind of come and gone, or um you know, have been larger parts and had to be cut down in order to fit everyone in. So Persephone, I feel like I could do like a show as Persephone. I have enough material that I could do an hour as Persephone, but I don't necessarily want to. And And so I'd prefer to have a shorter version of her that fits into a, a different scope. And that's kind of this the case with all of my shows, all the characters I have in them, I would happily talk for hours as them. Um, and I have lots of material and different ways of doing them. There's versions of Persephone as well of different uh, levels of shade with her. Yeah. So yeah. there's like a very, so when I did sketch off, you could only do seven minutes. That's right. And then there's, and then sometimes I've got to fit her into five minutes. 
ideally I would have 10 minutes and I go into the fact that she has this retreat and like, it's definitely like a labor camp. Like it's, it's, it's quite dark. And some people have watched it being like, is she like harvesting people's organs? And I'm like, who knows? So there's like variations of her that I would happily do that go darker and darker and darker, but there's also a surface level version. No, this is good. So how much, how much of uh, your Edinburgh show will she appear in and what, what what's the variation then in uh, different uh, content or characters in that show? So she's, she's about seven minutes in that. Yeah. Um, so this show, it's called Picnic and the idea is that the at the end of the show there's a picnic and I love picnics but the picnic picnic is a little bit of a a byword for like midsummer ritual um <laughs> and a lot of the characters involved uh in the show well all of them are sort of manifestations of parts of me either anxieties I have about yeah. the world uh or things that I'm not explaining because this is the thing I've had I've had to describe it in uh, in very short ways and it's it's nice to actually talk about it. Yeah, well, that's good. <laughs> so the show is really about me constantly, and this has been an issue I think throughout my life, wanting to always be in control, but also really enjoying being out of control. Um, I was always seen as a very responsible person at school, and actually improv helped me find the slightly the wilder side that I knew I had that but needed a safe space to act that way and I think a lot of people who do improv and character comedy and comedy in general feel that way they're maybe not the person the most outspoken person otherwise but when they're on stage they feel a sense of freedom and Mm. um and so this is kind of a uh, a play on that so some of the characters are very controlling like persephone she's somebody who's wants to be in control of everyone and thinks everyone should be doing exactly what she's doing and then there's other characters who are really seeking um to be out of control and to find uh releases from yeah. control and stress and then mixed in with that are because it's all born out of during the pandemic uh having all control taken off of us yes. and um so i've not been to the fringe since 2019 and the show i kind of when i started writing the show i was like i don't want to talk about the pandemic i just want to do a big fun silly silly show and then i realized that my need to do this big fun silly silly show was born out of an anxiety of I've ran out of, like, I've not had nearly enough fun. The fun might get taken away soon. Anything could, everything could stop. Everything could be taken away again at any point. And it's like, so it's a reflection of that, of like, it's big and fun and silly, but also uh, there's this serious dark undertone of like, we've got to do this ritual sacrifice to save the world. (laughs) (laughs) So we've got a, we've got a picnic basket. We've got Persephone. Who else might we meet? Yeah, so Mr. Basket Case, and I guess that's why also Picnic was the start, because I started doing Mr. Basket Case last year, um, who again is something I've started doing as a result of the pandemic, just playing with playing around with this picnic basket. And and sorry, just to quickly go back to what I mean by the outside in thing with him, is um so with him I took the the 
to get the, I, I looked at him, he's a big round picnic basket with a big flappy mouth. So his voice has, his, my mouth has to reflect. So I've got to be a bit, bat, 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 bat. he's loose, about big, big, his picnic basket. Hello. So he had to have a big sounding voice. Um, and is hello, Mr. Basket Case. And so he had this big voice and then the character kind of developed by him and he became this sort of MC type figure. So he does a lot of audience interaction and he gives a lot, but he's also a bit of like a taxi driver. Like he gives a lot of advice. Okay. So his bit is that he takes it and the audience ask him advice, uh, questions and he gives them advice, which is something I used to also do as Napoleon. Um, but um, so, yeah, so in this, so he's an, that's an example of outside in, but um, yeah, so we've got Mr. Basket Case, we've got Persephone, we've got Professor Von Flip Flap, uh, who's a German Swedish marine biologist, uh, and she just really loves fish. Um, <laughs> and she thinks we can learn a lot about fish and she sort of represents in the show an anxiety about sustainability and climate change and like wanting to, you know, get control over the environment and feel more safe in that. And she's, she's a bit of an outside in character because she's based on a, a friend of mine who's a German marine biologist um, who would tell me things about fish. And I'm like, that can't be true. And she's like, yeah, it's true. Um, <laughs> so I thought I have to share this. Um, then we have Neville. Neville Nevelson, he's an inside out character, I'd say he so his he's a he's a spy who has this really obviously fascinating job, but all he wants to do is talk about cryptic crosswords. Um, and that was born out of my obsession in lockdown with cryptic crosswords. I started becoming a bit obsessed with cryptic crosswords. And one of the reasons I really wanted to learn to do them is because I have this fantasy that if I were around in World War II, I'd have worked at Bletchley Park, <laughs> Bletchley House. <laughs> and so like to other people, like my director has been extremely helpful in this whole, this is my first time working with a director. And I talked to her about this and she was like, that's mad. Can you make that a character? The fact that you have this love of crosswords and you therefore think that makes you a spy. <laughs> <laughs> so. So yeah, so I created this character and I was like, oh, hi, I'm Neville Neville. So I had to sound like a really boring man. I was like, how do I make this man really boring, but like refuses to talk about the most fascinating thing about it, <laughs> the most exciting. So that's an inside out. Uh, who else do we have? I have uh, Sally the Caterpillar, who just really loves shoes. She's quite a 2D character. <laughs> and I think that... That's quite an outside sort of cat because I just was like, oh, it's really funny. I just love shoes. And she's kind of that off that woman in the office whose whole personality is shoes. Ah, this, um, this sounds good. <laughs> so plenty for folks to look forward to. Tell us uh, what time it's on, what venue and uh, what dates, perhaps. So Picnic, Charlie Vero Martin Picnic is on at 6.55 in the evening obviously, <laughs> at Underbelly Cowgate. Uh, it starts on the 3rd till the uh, 27th of August, apart from the 14th. It's not on Monday the 14th. Um, and I have previews in London. So I have a preview in London on the 26th of July at Bread and Roses Theatre. So Excellent. if you're not able to make Edinburgh Fringe, come see it at yes. the Bread and Roses and, and, if you're in and London. Look, 
look for the reviews. Um, I'm, I'm sure it'd be great. And uh, yeah, really interesting from a character improv um, puppetry point of view, you're combining all of those uh, talents, you might say, um, <laughs> because I think uh, most of the characters I've spoken to, and indeed my own experience has been about going on stage, usually as one character. But for you, switching and changing isn't a problem. And if anything, it sounds like you enjoy switching and changing. Yeah, definitely. Because I feel like, I mean, it's maybe closer to sketch comedy, I suppose, yeah. in a show you're doing lots of different things. But I wouldn't put a character into a show unless I feel like I could do it for a whole hour. Yes. Um, yes. It's just like it has to have that uh, foundation yeah. and stability yeah. behind it. Um, I'll just say that one of the things I find quite interesting about you saying like, oh, most people have one character and they're always that one character. Uh, whereas I do lots of different characters is that I find that most of the character comedians I know and gig with actually do have lots of characters. But that's because I think a lot of the character comedians I work with and sort of looked up to and sort of grew up with are, are women. And I wonder if it's a gender thing as well. I think a lot of women are are drawn to character comedy because they can be something very different and they can um they feel more confident being that way or I don't know but you know if you take someone like Susan Harrison Lorna Rose Train they have tons of characters yeah. as well I take your point about being able to be something else be someone else and maybe say what you feel that you might not be able to say in a character but what what's your idea about how does multiple characters help then uh, where does that connect in your thinking? Well, I'm just I'm just saying that um, I don't necessarily feel that doing one character is the norm and then doing multiple characters is it's strange because to oh. me, I feel like doing multiple characters is the norm and actually people doing one character is. It's strange. Yes. Uh. <laughs> yes. I wonder if I wonder if the difference, dare I suggest, and it, and it doesn't have to go in the podcast, I wonder if the difference is, so Ian Crawford, I perform at, at, at festivals, but I also mm. get booked for stand-up middle spots, uh, and I'm doing 15 or 20. So for those um, more commercial stand-up, you might say, whatever, uh, nights, then it has to be... Um, a, a well-developed, um, uh, well-practiced, I'm not saying the other stuff isn't, <laughs> but solid, solid act. And therefore it benefits me to uh, stick with one brand, mm. you might say. Um, so I, is there a difference there? Whereas if you're performing at improv nights, at sketch nights, but you're not taking your characters to stand-up nights, is is that a possible difference? I think maybe what comes out of that, because it's certainly me and Lorna and Susan and uh, Marnie Godden, that's another, and uh, people like, we do perform our characters at stand-up nights um, and we'll do one character. But I think maybe because women are pushed into alt comedy from the beginning and variety is more acceptable there anyway, like I remember going, being like I've had female stand-up friends being saying, it's "Like I'm not an alt comedian. Do they just mean I'm a woman?" <laughs> and it's like because the standard is um, male stand-up, uh, white male stand-up. So 
I wonder if that it's more just if coming, as you say, if you're if your comedy from the beginning, if your introduction into doing comedy is through the alt circuit or you're finding ways that aren't the stand up circuit because you're almost being pushed that way because you don't feel welcome in some place that can maybe start to inform why you do certain things. Yes. Um, yeah. I can yeah. see. I can, no, I can see that, and I, I, I hope. Um, I think. Oh well, I think I've seen it that um, stand up is getting more uh, inclusive, and that the bills are being deliberately curated so that we get more of a balance. But nonetheless, um, that's maybe still taking some time, and and at least the echoes of the past being male dominated um, mm. as uh, have have influenced um, perhaps yourself and and other performers. Um, have you felt that? Um, I'll, I'll just ask you that actually, because I I was I'm interested myself. I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder because I think that uh, <laughs> uh, of course you know, but the the character comedy, like musical comedy, maybe like improv and what have you, and maybe puppetry. Um, it, 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 and you mentioned it yourself earlier. It's not always welcome at um, a straight stand-up night. Mm. You might say. Have, have you felt any of that rejection, or have you sensed any of that difficulty getting yourself onto a bill? Yeah, I think sometimes, especially. I mean, sometimes an audience just doesn't know what to make of it, and it's mm. it can you can be fine getting onto the bill, but then the MC will be like, and now something weird's going to happen, and you're like, okay, great, thanks for introducing me like that. Um, and you know in the same way i've heard i've seen friends be like and now a woman thinking that's hilarious um so the audience does it's not help so you have to do so much work to set it up so the audience can come with you on it um but something i remember i did a an online workshop with josie long who's one of my favorite stand-up comedians i think she's great and obviously she's been doing it for a while and she has lots of different elements in her shows like she'll talk, do poetry and like stuff and she was saying uh stand up can be whatever you want don't let people tell you what if you want to do a painting in the middle of your stand up that's fine um and i think people like her saying that is starting to open it's not necessarily so much as well that like things are becoming more inclusive it's like people are opening their minds up a little bit to what yeah. can be involved yeah um she said, and I found that really helpful because for so yes. long I was like, well, I can't call myself a stand-up, yes. even though I was going to stand-up nights. And then she said, it's like, of course, of course you're a stand-up. If you're up on stage being funny, <laughs> then uh, it's, then it's yeah. stand-up. And I was like, That's oh, right. okay. <laughs> I guess I guess the proof is in the pudding. And the, and the truth is the MC and the organiser and the audience don't mind as long as we uh, make them laugh uh, and th and that's yeah. what it's all about and but sometimes yeah. it it is harder and if they're not quite expecting something mm. different uh, and it takes a while for them to uh, understand what's going on that that can uh, be uh, a challenge a <laughs> but that can also be part of the fun i suppose as well mm. yeah Mr. Pinecone, I have a do a character as a Pinecone. He um he's you know when you go into National Trust properties and you see a passive aggressive Pinecone on a chair to stop you sitting on it. I'm that Pinecone, ah. and but he like talks as if he's uh, in the army. Um, because he I were I were born in Skipton Wood, but I were made in the National Trust. Ah. Um, <laughs> I like it. Is it still the case 
have I uh, dreamt it? But were pine cones an indicator of the weather? Is that right? You know, if they open up, they tell you something. And Ooh. if they close, is this true? Uh, anyway, uh, we'll, I need we'll, to look that up. We'll, we'll put that in the bonus uh, bonus episode of the podcast. Um, this this is good. It sounds uh, sounds amazing. I'm sure it'll be lots of fun. What what do you think? Um, I've been thinking uh, a lot about character and getting dressed up. And you've been talking about puppets. You've been talking about improv. I've been thinking quite a lot about the idea of play and character comedy as play. And this, you mentioned yourself, perhaps um, stepping out of um, perhaps the restrictions that we place on our own personality and how we have to behave in every day. So sometimes mm. character comedy can feel like we're generating this childlike state of fun and creativity. Do you have you thought anything around that, or does that chime with anything you you believe about? Oh, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. That's I think one of the big things behind uh, when I teach character and when or and or improv. The workshop that I did was called uh, Improv Characters Joy. <laughs> Um, exclamation mark because it was all about play and I think you have to be a curious and playful person in order to do this because well how else are you going to get into somebody else's mind or or empathize or be able to play around as someone or something else um, and find things that are interesting Uh, I think it's a, a huge part of it and I think that's why a lot of people who do do character comedy do it because it's not practical. <laughs> it's not, you know, you carry, I'm working on a bit right now where I have like fake arms and I've like, I've got so many props and so I've got to carry this picnic basket around and God knows whatever else. And now I've added fake arms to it. And I'm like, how am I going to build these bloody <laughs> fake arms <laughs> and carry them all around? But do you know what? It's like, but I love it so much. It's so funny. It's so stupid. Yes. Um, that I couldn't give it up. I couldn't not have them now yeah. that I've just now that I've tried it out. Um, <laughs> and I think that's that's a lot of character. Like we're co- every fringe show I do. Every time I make a character show, I was like, next year, I'm just gonna do straight stand up. Mm. I'm gonna turn up mm. in whatever clothes I'm wearing that day. Just gonna set up a mic, and that's it. And and then I end up with like, you know, a dog cage on stage and <laughs> I'm wearing a snorkel and all these kind of things. What do you think about that? Um, uh, you've done some stand up. Could you see yourself switching to stand up? Or do you think as you're perhaps uh, suggesting or certainly demonstrating that, that your heart uh, is very much on the <laughs> character, wacky, improv, uh, childlike play side of things what do you think yeah I think as much as I love 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 stand-up and like helped other stand-ups and I've taught stand-up I do cover teaching for the stand-up courses and stuff and I don't think I'd be able to get away from that I feel like now recently the sort of idea of what stand-up is has expanded a little bit to include more sort of people who do like stuff with props and character there was always a bit of a snobbiness about prop comedy as if i think people assumed oh you can't be funny without your props and it's like no it's just we have way more fun with them but um yeah i mean in my show 
there are I never ever leave the stage even though I'm switching characters so in between me switching costumes I'm still on stage and in those moments I'm talking as myself mm-hmm. so there are like and then in the first versions of the show there was a lot more there was elements of stand-up in it where I was talking as myself telling whole bits and stories but as I've added more characters and maybe this is kind of what as you're saying it's like oh well I'd prefer to have this character and then this bit of stand-up that I was doing but there are still elements of me as myself talking about things very real to me in my life that would be stand-up and I have again I probably have enough material stand-up material that I've written for this show to potentially try out that I could do an hour of stand-up um but I just don't think I would enjoy it as much as being a caterpillar that's obsessed with shoes. <laughs> this, this, uh, this sounds good. And uh, you, you teach uh, improv, you teach other performance skills too. Can you summarise any advice or tips, perhaps for anybody starting out or just early on in their comedy career? Uh, what what would you, apart from coming to see your show and coming, uh, and coming, <laughs> coming to, to one my of classes. your improv classes, yeah. uh, <laughs> do, you have, do you have any tips and advice for uh, anyone thinking about um, doing something similar to uh, what we do? Uh, I'd say... Be cautious about taking too many bits of advice and tips. <laughs> That's a great tip. <laughs> because everybody has their own their own journey with it and their own background with it. And you know, I would be I I would be inclined to be like, don't, you know, stress, like take time and play and stuff. But then others would be like, no, well, you know you want to make money in this if you want to be successful go do competition go do all this like I hadn't done any competitions until this year so we did sketch off and because for so long I was like oh I don't really that's not really me doing sketches like doing competitions and I I couldn't apply for many of them um and so I would say no it's yeah, yeah, perhaps one of the best tips you gave was right at the start, though, um, and and you said yourself about you know it's very much a practical medium. You need stage time. Uh, I don't think you quite yeah. said that, but basically we learn. We it, it's you something you do learn. By doing. Yeah, you learn from doing, and you learn and you do it because you love it. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you know, if somebody can, and I've had a two star review from my very first show. There will be people who don't like what you do, but as long as you love what you're doing, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. I had in my first show, Dante's History of the Banished, where I played all historical figures that had been exiled. And it was a comment on uh, the theme of home and being and being away from home. And um, and I did all of Ten Lear at King Lear as King Lear in under 10 minutes. Oh, yes. Um, And that included puppets and things like that. Yeah. And one of the puppets was, um, well, so I had this review, I got a two star review and she took umbrage at this section because obviously she must love Shakespeare. And she was like, if you can, if you can tolerate seeing one of Shakespeare's greatest characters reduced to a block of cheese with googly eyes, (laughs) then perhaps you'll enjoy the show. (laughs) And, (laughs) and she was talking about the Earl of Gloucester, which is a puppet I made out of a giant block of Gloucester with yes. some googly eyes on it. Well, yeah. at, least it, at I, least it was Gloucester. At least it was yeah. double Gloucester, yeah. 
and I and I posted a picture on Instagram being with that quote and being like, "Can you tolerate this?" And people are like, <laughs> "Yes, that sounds amazing." Exactly. exactly. And I'm like, you know, if you're not if you're not enjoying it and confident in what you're doing, if somebody gives you a two star review like yeah, that, you might be yeah. like, "Oh shit, maybe I should get rid of the cheese puppet." Yes. But yes. It's like, but I was never going to get rid of my Earl of Gloucester puppet. I that's, thought it was hilarious. Well, that's well. There's a there's a there's another important thing that I definitely believe in myself, and you have to do the show that you would like to see. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, stuff can't be improved. But I also think um, they do sting, and those bad gigs <laughs> hurt, don't they? And those oh, yeah. reviews at the time, you know, uh, we wish we could get five stars, and we wish we could be carried around the car park on people's shoulders every time. <laughs> but but. Um, you must have you must have learned from that. Um, but then, is there a danger? Do you think? I think this myself sometimes that you do end up writing the show that if you're not careful, you you end up writing the show that you think Edinburgh or the festival or the mm. audience wants, rather than the show you have inside you. It's a balancing act, is it? Yeah, uh, and that's exactly. I think that falls into the same thing. Is because if you write a show of what you think other people want to see, it means if they don't like it, then you've got nothing. Yeah, you end yeah. up with nothing. Whereas if you at least write the show that you really love, yes, and brings you joy, yeah. then if nobody else likes it, then you still have a show you're very proud of. That's right. Uh, yeah, and I, I definitely, and I think it's, I've, I've really found it useful working with a director this time around and and giving myself time to work on the show cuz i um it's so easy to get into your head about edinburgh um yeah, yeah. especially when you're paying a lot of money and all these things and you're putting a lot of pressure on it it's been good for to have for me to have somebody to remind me like of what my what it is my beginning sort of yeah. goals were and yeah. um yeah, so I I think that's really all you can do. Um, this is good. Was there was there anything else uh, that you wanted to mention? Sometimes Edinburgh looms so large; it's kind of is that mm. the only thing? But there is other stuff going on. So, what will you be doing after August? That is a good question. My diary is pretty empty, and I'm really excited about that. <laughs> Most people are like, oh, my God, like, I've got nothing in the diary. And so I'll be teaching improv, like, I've got some work. Yeah. I'm also doing a play at the Edinburgh Fringe this year. Okay. I'm well, also in a play. Tell us about that. What's that? Uh, it's called Super. It's written by a friend of mine who's also directing it called Matt Radway. And it's about a couple who played Batman and Catwoman on Hollywood Boulevard and have since broken up and we're getting both sides of their story. Uh, or at least that's how I describe it. My, and it's a lot about um, success and failure and um, what we deem as those things. Um, so it's like a dark, it's a dark comedy. The other actor in it is uh, Max Dowler, who was in um, Line of Duty and things oh, like that. But he's a very, very funny man. Um, what so time of really day fun. is this one on and where is it? So that's on at one forty-five in the Pleasance Court Courtyard. Excellent. So I'm doing that first and then I've got, three four hour break and then i've got my show yes and then i'll be doing things like acms and stuff in the evening and then collapsing but with both that show and my show i mean the dream would be to do do the show again in london uh maybe like soho theater or something that would be the dream um 
I had originally wanted to, I was like, I'm going to write, write the show and I really want to do it again. I, I want to take it to Adelaide Fringe and Melbourne yeah. Fringe and maybe to New York, but I've got <laughs> so many props. <laughs> and and yeah. I also have a second per. I have a purse, like a, per a second person in this show. So it's getting more and more inexpensive, <laughs> the oh, yeah, idea yeah. of traveling it. But I would like to be able, I don't want to just, put it in a box after Edinburgh. I would love to do it again, but I'm also very excited about the idea of, you know, I've had some scripts that I'd like to work on and I've got some other, you know, maybe do some more stand up, maybe do yeah. some more acting and work with yeah. other people and things. So it's... I'm actually quite excited to do some other stuff after August And rightly, as well. rightly so. Uh, from the clips <laughs> I've seen, and for, certainly from the live performance uh, that I've seen, uh, and by the sounds of your Edinburgh show, it's definitely one to catch, and I certainly hope to be in the audience and look forward to seeing you perform again. Um, I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you today, Charlie. Thanks for your time and for giving us an insight into your comedy world. Thank you. It's been absolutely lovely. 